Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Laments of a Clinical Clerk Of all my consultants, most easy to please is the fellow who comes from infectious disease. His wants are so simple, his needs are so few. Just gather some sputum, blood cultures times two. X-ray the patient from guggle to zatch. Examine the urine, both catch and clean catch. It takes but a moment to do an LP. Swab wound, throat, and cervix. Yank out the IV. When all of the data are at least collected, the last culture plated, the last slide inspected, the attending arrives to review and recap, while intern and student enjoy a brief nap. He broods with the air of a scribe with papyrus and gives his opinion. Most likely a virus. Don't bother to fix it. Can't treat it. Can't cure it. Though superinfections may later obscure it. Should there be recurrence of fever or pain, go back to square one and start over again. J.B. Frank, 1978, New England Journal of Medicine. (laughs) Hey, Steve. What's up, Janine? So I saw a patient in clinic the other day that was feeling kind of lousy and reporting that they had a fever and maybe some rigors. He said, doctor, I've got chills. Were they multiplying? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking the funny thing, the actual funny thing is that if that patient were admitted to the hospital, I'd probably do a full workup, right? I guess so. Play along. What would you do? Patient with a fever. Sure. I got this. Um, Intern bread and butter. So I'd probably get labs and x-ray, maybe blood cultures. Maybe blood cultures? Uh, I, I guess so. I mean, that seems reasonable, right? If your fever is high enough. Does fever height correlate to blood culture positivity? I I don't know. Maybe maybe because they were rigoring. Really? And why do you think that? You know, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't like this, Janine. <laughs> I don't like this role reversal. The Socratic method is what I used to do to you when you were my resident. Haha. <laughs> now you know how it feels. Not very good. Mm-hmm. Well... Okay, I guess this is all for a good cause, because if I had to guess, you're trying to get us to talk about blood cultures, am I right? How'd you know, Steve? That is our topic for today. What a surprise. (laughs) So today we're going to go over... We'll start with a basic review of the guidelines for blood cultures. And two, we'll look at what the studies say about which patients are more likely to have positive blood cultures. Number three, even if you can guess who has a positive blood culture, when is it actually a good idea to get it? And this point really has three smaller considerations. Let's call them baby points. 3A, 33C. All super important. Let's start with 3A. What are general incidences of positive blood cultures and the much-hated false positive? 3B. Are some infections more likely to have positive blood cultures, also known as bacteremia? Leading us to 3C. Even if the culture is positive, are all positive results created equal? How do blood cultures that are positive affect our management? 
Such good baby points. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's lastly point out point number four, which is there's going to be a lot of information. So we'll try to sum up things at the end with some advice on who should we culture and who should we leave alone. We're going to challenge the medical culture Pun definitely <laughs> of culturing every inpatient with a fever and see where the data leads us. And hopefully we can take a deeper dive into this topic, which will help all of us become more informed practitioners. And reassure all those poor night float interns that are out there culturing patients at 2 a.m. Well, I'm not sure we're really going to succeed in doing that. Just trying to give them some hope, Steve. <laughs> Only to shake it away. <laughs> Hi, I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. Welcome to Mind the Gap. A Core IM podcast. We'd like to thank Dr. Aditya Shah, Chief Infectious Disease Fellow at the Mayo Clinic, for peer-reviewing this episode. Subscribe for our show notes at coreimpodcast.com. And follow us on Insta and Twitter. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto, and don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code CORIAM50 at factormeals.com slash CORIAM50. So let's start off with what the guidelines say about getting blood cultures. For this, we'll be looking to the Choosing Wisely campaign, my favorite. From the Choosing Wisely campaign, quote, Don't perform urinalysis, urine culture, blood culture, or C. diff testing unless patients have signs or symptoms of infections. Tests can be falsely positive, leading to overdiagnosis and overtreatment. That's pretty simple. That's what the Choosing Wisely campaign is all about. For those of you who don't know, it's an initiative of the ABIM. For our listeners who aren't familiar with them, that's the American Board of Internal Medicine. They aim to steer providers away from unnecessary or harmful testing and towards more high-value care. Check them out. Okay, but for the purposes of this episode, we're going to get just a little more nuanced. So to start, let's focus on who is the most likely to have a positive blood culture. Like, does high fever, fever at all, correlate with a bloodstream infection, aka bacteremia? Because that's what blood cultures are looking for, right? Let's be clear about that. The reason for getting blood cultures specifically is to look for bacteremia, which is associated with a higher risk of mortality than other infections. In the late 80s, some folks, actually the same ones cited in the Choosing Wisely recommendation, decided to look into who was more likely to have bacteremia. Their paper was called Predicting Bacteremia in Hospitalized Patients, a Prospectively Validated Model. That title pretty much sums up what they tried to do. They reviewed charts of almost everyone that got blood cultures during two periods. They compared patients that had bacteremia to those who didn't to try to figure out if there were particular risk factors associated with bacteria in the blood. That sounds like a case control study. 
Well, sort of. But they then use this analysis to create a predictive model, which they apply to a second cohort of patients in order to validate it. So what did they find? Which patients are more likely to have positive blood cultures? They found that only 7% of all cultured patients ended up having bacteremia. But the rates were actually higher in this high-risk group, up to 15% positive, and super low, only 2% in the low-risk group. And so who was more likely to be high and low risk? That's what they used the multivariate analysis for. They identified the following characteristics associated with a higher risk of bacteremia. So that was IV drug use, high mortality rates within a month, fevers over 38.3 degrees, rapidly fatal disease, defined as death within a month, an acute abdomen, and having a major comorbidity, and rigors. I feel like this still brings up more questions than it answers. What's a major comorbidity? Diabetes? And what is 38.3 degrees, an even less popular boy band from the late 1990s? Man, don't come after my boy Nick like that. They were legit R&B, and they, you, you know, they signed with Motown Records. That's how, that's how that. legit they were. Your true passion, overanalyzing 90s boy bands. Damn right. But to clarify, comorbidities were not the typical list in a mundane HPI. Instead, they referred to more serious stuff, like coma or brain death, bowel perforations, multiple traumas or burns, cardiac arrest in the last 24 hours, recent bone marrow transplant, severe pancreatitis, ARDS, or acute or chronic liver failure. <laughs> now I'm out of breath. That's heavy stuff. <laughs> so then what's with the whole 38.3 degree stuff, also known as 100 point, it's actually 101 degrees. Well, the authors contended that higher fevers correlated to a higher risk of positive blood cultures. And in their case, they correlated specifically to a cutoff of 38.3 degrees. What else did you come across in your reading about blood cultures? Well, here's my favorite paper of them all from the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam Series. Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> it has a really subtle title. Quote, does this adult patient with suspected bacteremia require blood cultures? Well, like they always do in that series, they really looked at a number of things, including actually what we were just discussing, fever severity. Yeah, with semi-interesting results. Apparently, fever greater than 100.9 Fahrenheit was associated with the likelihood ratio of 2.0 for having bacteremia. Not a lot, but it's still something. Okay, well, how about rigoring then? That's what I kind of want to know. You and the rest of the research world, Steve. <laughs> so it's been studied, and the general consensus is that rigoring does correlate with more bacteremia. And what about systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS, criteria? Is that useful? This paper was written in the SIRS era, before QSOFA, and was very pro-SIRS. They found that having two or more SIRS criteria increased the likelihood ratio to 1.8, whereas meeting only one criteria or fever decreased the likelihood ratio to 0.09. What they found was that SIRS criteria were sensitive, but not very specific. So that was a whole lot of information. I'm a little overwhelmed. There are so many risk factors. How am I going to remember all of them? Yeah, you know, you're not alone there, Janine. Multiple researchers have proposed different scores to simplify or risk stratify which patients with fever or other infectious symptoms may have bacteria in their blood. But wait, I've never seen any of them used in clinical practice. Why is that? Because they're not very great, Janine. <laughs> so part of it may be that a lot of these scores, just by virtue of really not great receiver operating curves, they're just not accurate. Diagnosis is hard. It is. <laughs> More specifically, they don't perform well when we consider both sensitivity and specificity together. The other reason might just be that they're kind of cumbersome to use. So where does that leave us? I don't know. I guess we could look into better technology, right? Those are also still pretty far out from becoming used in standard clinical practice. And you may have noticed that while we've named a number of factors that correlate to positive blood cultures, None of these dramatically increase the likelihood of someone having bacteremia. The likelihood ratios just aren't that good. Speaking of which, weren't we supposed to answer how common bacteremia is in specific infections or specific situations? 
So let's go back to that JAMA Rational Clinical Exam article. I really like their conclusion. Quote, blood cultures should not be ordered for adult patients with isolated fever or leukocytosis without considering the pretest probability. That really matters because if you have a low-risk patient who ends up with a positive test, that doesn't 100% mean that they have bacteremia. It could be a false positive. And in the JAMA article, they cite that there's a 7% rate of false positives in the hospital due to reasons like contamination from skin flora. That leads them to warn that in really low-risk patients, cultures may do more harm than good. False positives lead to further workup and possible overtreatment. Yeah, in a pretty good example of choosing the wrong population, in the ED and outpatient populations, bacteremia rates have consistently shown to be around 1-2%, to and only a fraction had changes in clinical management because of their culture findings. That could be because this population has higher rates of false positives. One paper argues that because of all these issues, we're probably culturing too many patients in the emergency department. Trends show that culture rates have gone up over the years, but that doesn't mean we're actually helping more patients. So moving away from pretest probability in the ED, let's talk about clinical management. We already went over what clinical features may help predict which patients are bacteremic, but what types of infections are more likely to cause bacteremia, and when does it actually change management? Back to our friends at the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam. So they tried to identify which patients are low, medium, and high pretest probability for bacteremia by reviewing 35 studies. Uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia, cellulitis, and outpatients. (laughs) one of these is not like the other, are generally low risk for bacteremia. Patients with pyelonephritis are considered medium risk. Compare that to folks with endocarditis, septic shock, or bacterial meningitis who are at high risk. Besides risk, what also differs by infection type is how much that bacteremia matters. Does it change clinical management? Does it change what antibiotics you use or how long you use them for? And that's where the bacteremia seen in urinary infections or pyelonephritis isn't the same as those high-risk infections. In GU infections, it's pretty easy to identify the right organism to treat by getting a urine sample. Different than meningitis, where you can't always get a positive culture on an LP unless you're perfect, (laughs) and are left treating empirically. So it goes to say that since you'll have positive urine cultures in most urinary infections, you don't usually need a blood culture to identify the causative organism. But if patients with UTIs or pilo are bacteremic, doesn't that mean they're sicker? So don't they need more antibiotics? That would be a reason to culture them, right? And that certainly seems very logical, but... The thing is that, sure, they might be sicker, but bacteremia is really only one signal that tells you that. Their vital signs can often be worse, or their labs will be abnormal, or generally, when you look at them, their overall clinical presentation can tell you that, not just bacteremia. Also, another important point is that most GU infections are caused by gram-negatives, and there was a cool recent trial suggesting that in uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia, mostly from UTIs, seven days of antibiotics were non-inferior to 14 days. But we're still waiting to see how the guidelines and the ID folks interpret the findings of the study. Technically, one of the subgroups did show inferiority, and there were some shortcomings to the trial. So if you want to know more, focus in on the discussion section of the paper, because the authors did a pretty good job talking about the study's limitations. Okay, so for now, we have to continue saying that bacteremia still does impact the management of GU infections, for now. How about those infections that were higher risk for bacteremia, like septic shock? Don't overthink that. Remember Nike. Just do it. Thanks, Steve. It's pretty well accepted that we should definitely obtain blood cultures in patients with those three bad conditions, suspected endocarditis, bacterial meningitis, and like we just mentioned, septic shock. In these situations, any amount of data that can guide you to appropriate antibiotic usage is imperative. 
Furthermore, part of the definition of endocarditis is that they have bacteremia. So if you don't get blood cultures, you're going to have a hard time diagnosing the patient and figuring out what bacteria to treat. Wow, Janine, that was a loaded point. (laughs) So unfortunately, you got to get those needles out. (laughs) Too many puns. I can't help myself. This point just bears repeating. (laughs) 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 Studies support... (laughs) Studies support the importance of obtaining blood cultures in patients with suspected endocarditis, bacterial meningitis, and septic shock. We're just going to say that again. They're more likely to have bacteremia, and it's more likely to impact clinical judgment. I think we've made it clear. (laughs) On to one of our last points. How do blood cultures impact patient outcomes and the use of resources? There's a New England Journal article showing that culturing more patients led to more false positives that increased the use of hospital resources. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is from the same Harvard group that tried to create a predictive model for bacteremia. They used the same data set from before, but now compared the cost of nearly 1,100 negative blood cultures versus nearly 100 false positives. And perhaps unsurprisingly, they found on average that there was an increased length of stay from 8 to 12.5 days and an increase in cost from $8,700 to $13,000. The cost increase was driven by multiple factors like length of stay and increased lab and pharmacy charges. According to Google, after inflation from 1990 is... Now an increase in cost of almost $11,000 per hospital stay. A QI professional's nightmare. Not to mention countless exposures to unnecessary antibiotics. An antibiotic stewardship person's nightmare. So don't kill nice, happy bacteria. Get blood cultures when it clinically makes sense. So here are our takeaways from this deep dive into the wonderful world of microbes, fevers, and blood cultures. (laughs) Stop, Steve. You sound like Miss Frizzle. That is a compliment, Janine. She's a beautiful human being. (laughs) You just wish you had a magic school bus, don't you? Yes. Yes, I do. And I would paint it orange. You've thought about this before? I have, actually. (laughs) It would have stars and rockets all over it. (laughs) So point number one. Okay. So let's leave Steve to his daydreams and review what we've actually discussed today. Number one, the guidelines according to the folks at Choosing Wisely are quite clear. Don't get blood cultures or really any infectious workup unless you suspect an infection. Seems like common sense. (laughs) Furthermore, two, being super sick, having high fevers and rigors are some along with many of the other risk factors that increase your risk of bacteremia. And there may even be some helpful technology-driven tools to help you predict this, but we just don't have a great risk algorithm out there yet. So you can't get away from the clinical side of things. So point three, pretest probability really matters because false positives can happen. Some infections and even some settings are more likely to have bacteremia. Uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia, cellulitis, and being an outpatient are generally associated with lower pretest probabilities of bacteremia and higher rates of false positives. So blood cultures may not be useful in those cases. GU infections like UTIs and pylo are medium risk for bacteremia, and the jury's still out on how much that affects management. For now it does, though. You treat patients for longer. In other severe infections like endocarditis, meningitis, or septic shock... Don't overthink it. Just get the blood cultures. But for this final point, we want to be clear. It's probably still a good idea to culture most patients when they are admitted with presumed infections. Even if their risk of bacteremia is low, never say never. We just suggest that you always think carefully through your patient's clinical scenario, even if you want to go by the book and culture everyone. Just remember, false positives are real and have their own complications. 
So ultimately, we're not advocating for a change in typical practice. Sorry, Nightfloat interns. But we want you to be thoughtful about who you're culturing and what you expect the culture to show and do for you. Told you they'd be disappointed. <laughs> Sorry. So we know that we went kind of quickly through the data. And arguably not as in-depth as some might like. So as always, we want to encourage you to check out the data too. Take a look at the links below the podcast at coreimpodcast.com. So you can take the time to judge the data for yourself and sound smart on rounds. Super smart. Super smart. <laughs> After all, this is a podcast talking about those gaps in our knowledge. So if you really want to feel confident on the data, take the time to pick it apart yourself. And if there are any other topics you'd like to hear discussed, please let us know. I'm Steve Liu. And I'm Janine Knudsen. And remember, mind the gap. Thanks for listening. Disclaimer, opinions in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of affiliated institutions. Please don't use this podcast for medical advice, but instead consult with your healthcare provider. So that was a whole lot of information. I'm a little overwhelmed, and I need some more jelly beans. <laughs> Just I want, kidding. I want Cheez-Its. <laughs>